Hello and welcome aboard another episode of the Gallant Says Podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, but live only on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Gallant Says. I am Paul Gallant. It is April 5th, 2022, a Tuesday. It is the day after the Kansas University Jayhawks took down the North Carolina Tar Heels, 72-69. to 69. Nice. In a pretty good national championship game. <clears throat> Started off watching this game at a bar nearby in Houston called Port Swing Pub. It didn't start off very well. UNC was body in Kansas early. They were up 38-22 with 2.23 to play in the first half. They were up 40-25 to 25 at halftime. It's the largest deficit overcome in the title game ever since 1963 when Loyola Chicago, I believe Sister Jean's shindig, she was probably only 50 then, did it against Cincy. It's one of the best comebacks we've seen in a while in terms of the actual margin that had to be came back from. But I got to say, as far as great comebacks overall, I don't know if it really registers, mainly because things escalated so quickly at the beginning of the second half. I drove home from Port Swing Pub thinking to myself, oh, okay, well, this game is probably done. I don't think I'm going to miss anything. North Carolina can't miss. And Kansas started the second half on a 12-1 run. By the time I sat down, it was actually a good game. So I watched the rest of it, and I'm no college basketball expert by any means, but it, it was a nice finish. got to say, though, we, we, we do have to go back to a moment in time. And look, I, I hate to kick a guy while he's down, but, I mean, how can't you do it to one Hubie Davis who really had a bit of a premature kind of celebration feel at his post-halftime interview with Rachel Wolfson of TBS for last night's broadcast's sake. We're competing out there. It's live action, Tracy. It's live action out there. I thought we were nervous at the beginning. Then we started to settle in. We got better defensively. Now we're attacking a basket. We're ready to go. Are you okay with how Baycott is right now? He's doing terrific. I'm so proud of him. I told you, 52%. Him on the floor. It's good news for Carolina basketball. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Tracy. Hey, it's live action. It's live action. I think he was so pumped. I think he was going to tell Tracy to get in there and put a blue shirt on. I feel bad. I mean, he's so excited. You're happy for him. He's there for the first time. But also, this is the same guy who coached a North Carolina team that blew it almost against Baylor in the uh, earlier rounds of the tournament. I think this was to get to the Sweet 16. They were up big. They almost lost. Baylor tied it up, sent it to overtime. But North Carolina was able to get it done in that extra period. It was a Oilers-esque collapse. They do have Oilers-esque colors. It got me thinking, though, about the best comebacks in sports history. Once again, I don't think this was that big of a comeback. And I do think that Hubie Davis probably needed to, I don't know, think about grandma, maybe think about baseball cards, do anything that he possibly could to, you know, last a little longer. It's a marathon, not a sprint. You don't want to last five seconds. You don't want to last 30 seconds. There are swipes for that, I'm told. I can't say. But in that moment, you could tell the man was prematurely excited, prematurely 
celebrating. I know he's not saying Kansas is dead. We took him out, but kind of got that vibe. And obviously things escalated quickly. He should have called a timeout. He didn't, whatever. Maybe he'll learn going forward. He beat Duke. So pretty good tournament, all things considered for a North Carolina team. That was an eight seed going in. We had a lot of interesting responses to the who, who had the greatest comeback in sports history. My favorite one is when the New England Patriots came back from down 28-3 against the Atlanta Falcons in the Super Bowl that took place right here in Houston. That was a game that I had to have a lot of patience with. I was watching the game and everyone was talking shit to me. I think they all wanted me to be happy, but they also liked the fact that since I'm a Patriots fan, I've been really spoiled. So while you can talk shit, you may as well talk shit. Even though I'm not really the biggest shit-talking Patriots fan, I'm more of like the dismissive, arrogant, condescending one, which I suppose is actually worse. But everyone was circling around. They smelled blood in the water. And when the Patriots were down 28-9 and missed an extra point, I went to the bathroom, washed my face, and I thought so hard about leaving. I really came close to leaving. But I said to myself, you know what? I can't be a pussy. I've got to sit here, watch it out, get to the end, And I did, and they ended up winning. And then I got drunk the rest of the night, and I don't remember much happening other than somebody drove my car home for me. So that was neat. It wasn't me. I remember that because I was in the backseat of my own car, and I was very confused about this. But whatever the case, other great comebacks. There was a comeback that I missed, which is why I, when it comes to any football game that I go to, I am not going to leave again. But specifically any game that involves the New England Patriots. I was 13 years old in eighth grade. The Patriots were down 11 points with like two minutes left. And my feet were feeling cold. It wasn't a warm day. Ricky Williams was running all over the Patriots and they were down 11 with like two minutes left. And then a drunk guy fell on me and my dad's like, okay, let's go. So we went, we walked home back to the uh, parking lot through the woods. And we heard the Patriots do a comeback on the radio as I was walking through the woods. And I was like, that's it. That's the last time I do this. And this was when they had only won one Super Bowl. So I did not think that they were like this unstoppable dynasty that they eventually became. But we also got some other ones. We got one from, you know, the early 90s. And look, we got to change the narrative on this one. Yes, the Houston Oilers blew a 35-3 playoff lead against the Buffalo Bills. But think about this. The Houston Oilers history belongs to the Tennessee Titans. It was a tough loss, and I'm sure that, you know, looking back, you probably were really pissed off to see the Oilers blow it. But let's change the history here. Fuck that. It belongs to Tennessee now, just like the Tennessee Oilers belong to Tennessee and Oilers history belongs to Tennessee. Guess what? So does the worst loss in NFL history. So does blowing a 35-3 lead. So does... All of the history that the Titans are, all of their loserdom, blowing the one seed, losing the Super Bowl by one yard, blowing the one seed three times, by the way, that belongs now to Tennessee. A loser franchise. Exercise that from your mind. Yes, it was traumatic in the moment, but you can do therapy and you can remember things differently 20, 30 years later. We all do it, right? How many memories of your past do you legitimately remember 100%? None of us do. Memory's a weird thing. It's fleeting. And we don't, I think, have as good of a memory as we all believe that we do. We will forget things and remember things in a way that actually wasn't the case. And here's the thing. I mean, unless you were somehow documenting your entire life when you were young. There's no way for anyone to prove you wrong. So 
Yeah, Tennessee Oilers lost. They blew it. 35-3 to the Buffalo Bills. Losers. Must suck to be them. Can't relate. Some people were giving me shit on 97.5 and 92.5 earlier today because I didn't think about the Clutch City Rockets off the top of my head. For those who don't know, that's a pretty bad fucking omission by me because the Clutch City Rockets were dope. 94 and 95 in the playoffs. Here's who they came back against. In the 94 Western Conference semifinals, they were down 0-2 to the Phoenix Suns. And they'd never won with Akeem Olajuwon. So down 0-2 early on, Houston, the Houston Chronicle wrote a headline that called them Choke City. They would go on to win the 1994 Western Conference semis, despite that 0-2 early deficit. They were also on the brink of elimination against the New York Knicks down 3-2. Came back and won that one as well. In the 1995 Western Conference Finals, the first round, they were down 2-1 to the Utah Jazz. And in the semifinals, they were down 3-1 again to the Phoenix Suns. Talk about Choke City. That's Phoenix. So you got to keep the Hakeem Olajuwon, Houston Rockets, back-to-back champions in your mouth on that. It wasn't one comeback, but it's a lot of comebacks over a period of two years. I mean, two in each round of the, uh, two in each go-round of the, not go-round, two in each playoff run. Pretty impressive. There's one I've never seen, and I felt like it would be fun to watch it live with some of y'all right now. Twitch.tv slash Gallant says is how you do it. And let me turn the volume down because in the past, when I have left the volume up, it hasn't exactly sounded so good. So, anyway, let's uh, make this thing full screen. Bring it up on Twitch. Here is Tracy McGrady against the San Antonio Spurs in 2004. Look how baggy those shorts are. Down 76-68. Okay, 35 seconds left. Now it's 76-61. You're watching this for the first time. What do you think is actually going to happen at this point? You probably are on the verge of checking out. And this took place at Toyota Center. Let's keep watching here. They get the ball back at 78-71. Man, the Spurs scored really quickly there. Tracy McGrady's dribbling around. He shoots it, and he gets an he gets an and one three. That's fucking insane, and it was off of Tim Duncan. Uh, that is a really incredible shot. Probably an ill-advised one, but holy crap. That was absolutely incredible, and they're going to show the replay right now on the TNT broadcast. So he gets around Bruce Bowen. Yao Ming might have set a moving screen there. Tim Duncan just raised his arms up in the air, and McGrady did a T-Mac leaning into him. I mean, he double clutched that and he hit it. That's an incredible shot. So now it's 80 to 75 with 16.2 seconds left. I'm guessing the Spurs had a possession. They get another two points. And one for T-Mac. Okay, so that's even crazier. Barely get the inbound in. Bruce Bowen in his face. Fade away. Hits it again. 80 to 78. Holy shit. Yao Ming is sending some great picks here, but good God, Tony Parker over his head on the inbound pass. Man, those Spurs teams were loaded with talent, weren't they, back in the day? Oh, man. The hang time that he got on that and the the ability to get the hang time that players back in the day had with the amount of fucking shorts that they were wearing is really impressive, right? I mean, weren't things so fucking baggy back then? Holy crap. All right. So now we have the Spurs trying to inbound the ball with 11.2 seconds to go. And, okay, um, some small fellow. Oh, he just ate shit and turned it over. Oh, my God, five seconds left. Tracy McGrady going at the length of the court, shoots a three. No way. 
Wow. 1.7 seconds left to go. 81 to 80. And the Tony Parker last second shot. Holy crap. All right. Well, we did something together. We watched an incredible comeback. Greg Popovich still has his hair. That guy in the Spurs is shocked. I would be too. 81 to 80, a final score. Good God. What a comeback. That would have been a lot of fun to see in person. So there we go. We watched a comeback together, people. Shared community experiences. It's what makes sports great. I want to play a game now. And it has to do with what happened at the end of last night's national title. So Mark Emmert is the commissioner of the NCAA, right? That's his title. Hang on, let me be 100% sure here. Mark Emmert, Wikipedia. Mark Emmert is the current president of the National Collegiate Athletic Association. Look at that hair. Is it a wig? I don't know. He is the fifth CEO of the NCAA. He was named as the incoming president April 27th, took over November 1st of 2010. Wow. He was previously the 30th president of the University of Washington, which was his alma mater. Holy shit. He went to Syracuse where he got his PhD. He's a doctor? Huh. Anyway, so Mark Emmert's the commissioner slash president, whatever the fuck you want to call it, CEO of the NCAA. And last night, he didn't have his best moment. Look, I get it. It's a complicated scene when you're up on a stage with a head coach, some players, the president of a university, but there's only a couple of things that you need to get right, right? The only things that you need to know are who won the national title and who you are going to be handing the trophy to. You just need to say the name of the team that won the national title right. It's not that hard. I mean, you've been watching the game for two hours. You knew who was going to play in the game for slightly less than two days. What could possibly go wrong? Well, here's Mark Emmert on TBS. Fan base has been extraordinary. We're so excited for you. And here to present the trophy is the head of the basketball committee, Tom Burnett, to, to coach Seth and the Kansas City Jayhawks. Oh, no. Oh, no. He said the Kansas City Jayhawks. The Kansas City Jayhawks. Mark Emmert, you're the president of college sports. There's no Kansas City team that I'm familiar with, let alone one that was playing on that night. City Jayhawks. Kansas City Jayhawks. South and the Kansas City Jayhawks. And the Kansas City Jayhawks. Oh, boy. I mean, the Kansas City Jayhawks played over and over and over again. But he wasn't done, and Kansas fans might be more pissed off about this one. University of Kansas Jayhawks, no, sir. No, Mark Emmert, you beautifully haired man. That is erroneous. It's Kansas University. Not Kansas City Jayhawks. Not University of Kansas Jayhawks. Kansas University. And clearly he panicked. How do you fuck that up, though? You, you, you have to say five things, essentially. Congratulations. To the Kansas Jayhawks. That's it. How do you fuck that up? It's really not that hard. And he did anyway. And now it has me thinking. 
play a little game here, right? There's a lot of commissioners that frustrate us across sports. So let's have a commissioner douche off. Oh, yeah. Some ambience. Let's introduce today's players in the commissioner douche off. He's the commissioner of the National Hockey League. He has seen his sport have a lockout. 69 years old, five foot seven, and hated by his entire sport, Gary Bettman. He's five foot 11, but carries himself like he is much, much bigger. He is obsessed with his workout regimen. His hair is red, and he loves to suspend people arbitrarily, including Tom Brady. What the fuck was that about? Roger Goodell. Up next, he's dead, and he moved the Seattle Supersonics from Seattle to Oklahoma City. What an asshole, David Stern. He's the commissioner of baseball and in the midst of a terrible cheating scandal called the trophy that the Astros may have won with a little bit of cheating involved. A piece of metal pissing off all of baseball. He kind of screwed things up during the 2020 pandemic. He also screwed things up over the past couple of weeks and we haven't had baseball season start to this point because of him. The one, the only, Rob Manfred. And last, but not least, you saw him last night call the Kansas University Jayhawks, the Kansas City Jayhawks. His hair is glorious, so at least he's got that going for him. Mark Emmert. Below Blackstar says that's a Husky education for you, LOL. So here's how we're going to do this, okay? Because it could have, you know, this little game that we're about to play, I could have done research, but no, screw that. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read off the top headlines for each one of these guys, Mark Emmert, Gary Bettman, Roger Goodell, David Stern, and Rob Manfred, that we find on Google, and whoever has the worst one loses. So let's just read a bunch for Mark Emmert today. Mark Emmert wrongly salutes Kansas City Jayhawks. Fans roast NCAA President Mark Emmert for congratulating Kansas City Jayhawks. NCAA President Mark Emmert botches trophy presentation. Mark Emmert embarrasses himself yet again. So that's Mark Emmert. That's okay. Let's see what Gary Bettman has. Gary Bettman, cat manipulation, not a big problem in the NHL. That's not really bad. I've got to say, Gary Bettman doesn't have a whole lot of negative things to be said about him. If you just enter Google, Gary Bettman. Gary Bettman, bad headlines. That'll work a little bit better. Four facts that prove Gary Bettman is the worst commissioner in the NHL. Gary Bettman's 10 biggest fails as NHL commissioner. While the NHL's problems are not just on the ice, but with Gary Bettman, the good, bad, and ugly of Gary Bettman's 25-year NHL tenor, uh, tenure. Bettman hits wrong notes in first press conferences. Gary Bettman, the worst pro commissioner ever? All right, let's go to Roger Goodell, bad headlines. Roger Goodell's got good hair, I'll give him that. Why Roger Goodell is bad as hell for the NFL, Bleacher Report headline. Wow, that sounds like great journalism there. 
Three ways Roger Goodell failed to show leadership. Roger Goodell accused of hypocrisy in protest response. Why NFL fans are so mad at Roger Goodell. I didn't get it right. Goodell admits he drops the ball on the Baltimore Ravens and Ray Rice. David Stern. Bad headlines. Let's look it up. David Stern is the worst commissioner in American sports. The worst blunders of NBA commissioners David Stern's career. Oh, this one's not bad. I mean, this one just says that he died. Jeannie Buss wants Lakers fans to stop blaming David Stern for X. For Detroit Piston fans, David Stern leads complicated legacy. I think that's just about everybody. And then Rob Manfred. Bad headlines. Manfred's taking this one in a landslide because Manfred was bragging about how he was like good at labor negotiations. And yeah, I know they, we only missed a, a week of games that we are going to see played, but come on how Rob Manfred's ineffective reign as MLB commissioner, blah, blah, blah. What Rob Manfred should have said after canceling MLB games. Rob Manfred has more than an image problem. Players blast Rob Manfred and owners. Rob Manfred's entire case for owners is false. Rob Manfred's smiling while delivering delayed season news. Rob Manfred's taken the douche off 100%. Black, uh, below Black Star comments on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Gallant says, next February, Bettman will have been the NHL commissioner for 30 years. Jeez, wow, that's something else. And, you know, you don't really see commissioners walk away. I mean, I guess Paul Tagliabue did with the NFL. I guess Bud Selig did with baseball, but maybe this is... I guess David Stern did with the NBA. So hang on. They do step away, but Gary Bettman, I guess, is the one who has it. That's something else. Manfred's the worst of all of them right now. Emily says, the fact I don't know Gary Bettman's name off the top of my head tells me he's the least douchey commissioner. But that's because you're not watching a lot of hockey. When I moved to Florida for high school, the Tampa Bay Lightning were a team that I started watching. Um... With my uncle, I would go to all of their games. He was basically my best friend when I first moved down here. Also a Kansas grad, by the way. And while I was watching them, they won the Stanley Cup that year. So I was super excited for the next year. We got tickets. We were going to go to a bunch of games. And then the lockout happened. So the year that I finally fell in love with hockey, I didn't really like hockey when I was growing up in Boston. The next year, there was a lockout, and that was it. And that kind of killed my love of hockey right there and then. I'd watch it, but not religiously ever after that. Gary Bettman kind of killed my love of hockey in its infancy. So he's got to be up there. I, I, I feel like the fact that he has been in power for such a long period of time, basically my entire life, shows that there's not that much of a push to get him out. And that's, that's a depressing thing. Uh, what else do we have here on today's Galant Says episode? Oh, yeah. This is a good baseball rule change. So baseball is expected to give teams a go-ahead for players to deploy this thing called PitchCom, which essentially is some sort of Star Trek device where catchers have a pad with buttons on their wrist, and they can signal pitches, the pitch type, the location, directly to the pitcher through a listening device. Up to three teammates of the pitcher and catcher will also have access to the signals, aiding fielders in positioning. Uh, this write-up says that change in baseball is often slowed by tradition, but the first reviews of the PitchCon system this spring have been glowing, with players raving about how the electronic process of pitch signaling has been seamless, helping with the flow of the pitcher's actions on the mound. 
I love this. And forget the whole sign-stealing thing, which we will talk about in just a moment. Pitchers take too long to throw the fucking ball. We talked about it, I think, on last week's podcast at some point, how there's this hardo umpire who is calling a guy out for stepping out of the batter's box, but I'm okay with it, and I'm okay with this even more so. I hope there's no resistance to it. Pitchers, sure, being scared of sign-stealing, that's one reason to implement this with the scandal that the Astros and the Red Sox and the Yankees probably will be found out to be a part of, and I would imagine the Dodgers and the Rangers in their own way, too. It's one thing to stop the cheating side of things, but it's an entirely other thing to just make the game happen a lot more quickly. And when pitchers cross up signs or are paranoid that signs get stolen, it takes them fucking forever to throw the ball to home plate. And we need to make pitchers throw the ball. There's nothing worse than some random reliever with a five ERA. It's taken 30 seconds to throw the ball to home plate. And you'll see a lot of guys like that. It's like, dude, it's not going to help you. You're not good. Just throw the ball. Get it over with. So I'm excited about this potential rule change, this potential change to baseball, where you will have sign stealing on catchers' wrists because the games take too long as it is. You already have pitchers and hitters adjusting their crotch for the entirety of a game and spitting out tobacco and stuff like that. So how about we get things going, huh? Is that so hard to ask? By the way, um, we did see Carlos Beltran on the Yes Network, an interview with, uh, I believe this is uh, Michael K of the Yes Network. And let's just listen to a really leading question that Michael K gives him right here. Again, this courtesy of the Yes Network. Now, the commissioner supposedly sent out a directive in September to the teams, all right, this, this all has to stop. Mm-hmm. Did anybody from the front office ever tell you guys this has to stop? Mm-mm. And the front office knew what was going on? Well, if they got the letter, they knew, but <laughs> right. they never shared it with us. Right. Nobody say anything to us, you know, nobody say anything. I wish somebody would have said something. Mm-hmm. And, um, and a, lot of, a lot of people always ask me why you didn't stop it. And uh, my answer is, I didn't stop it the same way no one stopped it. Right. Because it's working for us. Why are you going to stop something that is working for you? Right. So if the organization would have said something to us, we would have stopped it for sure. Did you co-op? How many times did you hear Michael K. say right over the course of that little back and forth between he and Carlos Beltran? You heard it a lot. And look. He's the voice of the Yankees. Are you expecting hard-hitting journalism from a guy that's going to be now an analyst for the Yankees on the Yes Network? No, you're not. But this is 100%, in my mind, a question that Carlos Beltran told Michael Kay to ask before the interview. And an interview that Michael Kay steered Carlos Beltran to the direction of, okay, well, look, we didn't get this memo. The Astros management did. Astros ownership did. Now, look, I I think it remains up for debate whether or not Jeff Luna was aware of what was going on. Luna has claimed innocence. It's hard to buy that given how scientific and I think just intelligent and hands-on Luna was. 
I have a hard time buying into the idea that he didn't know anything about it. But in this situation, you know, you would think that I'm losing my train of thought. Bad job by you, Paul. You would think that there would be somebody that would have told Carlos Beltran to stop. And guess what? There was. A.J. Hinch took a baseball bat to a TV. Brian McCann challenged multiple players in the Astros clubhouse about it. Like, there were people that were turned off by it. And Beltran was the most powerful voice in that Astros clubhouse, including over A.J. Hinch, who admits that he could have done more maybe to stop things. And he's trying to tell us here that... He was essentially just doing what he was doing because no one was telling him to stop. Like, how effective is that as a defense for anything? Yeah, well, no one told me to stop. I was pressing my cat's face over and over again, poking it and poking it, and it scratched me in the eye. But no one told me to stop. That's kind of what I hear. They had to have known that at some point this was going to get out if there were some people in the clubhouse that didn't like it. And obviously, Mike Fires came out with it a little bit later, saying what was going on and more and more investigations were done. You find out that there was some trash can banging going on as well in baseball's investigation, but Beltron acting the way that he was, it's rich, not surprising. And that's what state sponsored media is going to do when they don't want to get anyone to, and when they don't want to basically allow for an answer, that's going to make them look bad or make Carlos Beltron look like the bad guy that he was at least for the Yankees. It's funny. They're welcoming him in with open arms, seeing as they bitch and moan about 2017 all the time. But in this situation, I mean, he knew what he was doing. So I'm happy that the Astros actually have an ally here. Let's go to a station that I used to work for on the side in Boston, WEEI and the Greg Hill show, Chris sale, skinny Red Sox pitcher with, no ass and no success to speak of against the Astros in the playoffs had this to say about the Astros sign-stealing scandal. (laughs) Here's the thing, and I'm going to give you my honest opinion. If the Astros were the only team doing it, then yeah, you know, give it back, take it back. I know for a fact they weren't. So, (laughs) you know, all these people pointing fingers, well, hey, take a check in the mirror real quick. You know, make sure that you and your team weren't doing something. Um, and what they did was wrong. Uh, and I'm not trying to condone it, but, yeah. I mean, shoot, we're talking five years ago now, and we're still talking about this stuff. Um, I'd like to kind of turn the page on it, but, it, it, you know, it happened. They dealt with it. There's nothing you can really do about it now, sitting here where we are. Um, so you just kind of move on from it. Okay. I think now that we all have to say that Chris Hale is a friend of Houston, because he has all the reason in the world to hate the Astros. But instead of bitching and moaning like the Yankees are still doing about 2017, he's moved on. You know what helps? Moving on, winning. Boston has been the Astros' biggest rival in the American League over the past five years. The Tampa Bay Rays, you could put in that conversation too, since the Rays did beat the Astros, of course, in an American League championship series uh, during the pandemic. But... The Red Sox were the number one. The Astros have gone up against them now, what, three times in the playoffs? Two and one against them overall, but two World Series split between the two of them. 
they're the main rival, and you don't hear any bitterness out of Chris Sale. What's the Yankees' excuse? Other than that, they've turned into the little brothers of the American League. Whiny, sad excuse makers that have no idea how to put accountability on themselves. That's what they are now. It's sad. It's embarrassing. But I love it. It's great. That's going to wrap up today's edition of the Galat Says Podcast. Big thanks to everybody for tuning in live on twitch.tv slash says. If you want to watch this thing live with video, with all sorts of extra tidbits, twitch.tv slash says. Give me a follow if you haven't already. But maybe you're a podcast person. You can subscribe to the Galan Says Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Below Black Star says, have a great afternoon, Paul. Hook him. I am wearing a hook him shirt. And I do lean with UT. Sorry to all the Aggies out there. Like, I don't hate the Aggies. Y'all do get a little annoying in mass. And I do think that UT needs to, you know, maybe be a little less cocky, a little less arrogant. But I'll say this, okay? My two best friends are UT fans. I got to lean with my two best friends. You got to ride with them. Even if one of them maybe is a little bit crazy watching games. Anyway, you know how to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. The Beer Man Greg says, see you tomorrow. Appreciate that, Beer Man Greg. We are the humblest team in the world, says Below Black Storm. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Texas is back. (laughs) Anyway, um, big thanks to everybody. So long. Farewell. Make sure you tune in to Vanessa and Gallant tomorrow at 10. Right now, I do think it's just going to be me. Vanessa is back in Indianapolis again, which really sucks. It's so, so much a bummer to see that she's back there. So more issues for her dad. Um, She'll keep us posted on what's going on. I'll tell you what's going on, but it's just going to be me tomorrow. So until then, so long. Farewell. Big thanks to tuning in, and you will hear me tomorrow on Wednesday. Peace!